Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of ClickBang. A lot of topics on tap for tonight. We're going to start with a bunch of... We're going to start with some stuff. We're going we're to cover, actually, a bunch of vaping stuff and uh, a bunch of police state stuff. Sounds like a standard fare for the evening. But before we do that, I want to talk about just a few things. First, that everyone can enjoy. or mm, Actually, that's not true. That a lot of people can enjoy. Um, there's just been uh, a ton of good new television shows. Narcos, while not uh, super accurate, is definitely an exciting story about the drug, tra the cocaine drug trafficking trade in uh, South America, featuring Pablo Escobar. It's basically all about his life. Uh, you know, lots of fiction in it, but uh, it's good. Very, very good. Recommended. Um, finished. They just had one season. And I think they'll have one more. Another show I really enjoyed was Mr. Robot, which is about kind of like a weird, creepy computer hacker um, with some fight club thrown into it. Uh, it's it's good. Uh, not much sex, though. There's like no sex, actually. I think it's on USA. Keep hearing about all these networks I watched as a kid I didn't even know existed anymore. Case in point, The Nick. Now, The Nick is something really really special now here's the thing it's about uh uh basically some surgeons in a hospital in manhattan in the year 1900 now in the year 1900 uh there was very little known about surgery but it was a time where they were learning more and more you know like in from 1895 to the year 1900 they learned more about surgery than they had learned in the last 500 years. So it was a time of discovery and all this stuff. And it's, it's a really, really well done drama. Now here's the problem with the Nick. It is really, really graphic. And I'm not talking about violence. Like personally, I can watch old boy and eat and, and, and eat, a, eat a sandwich. You know, I, I'm not skeeved out by graphic violence, and it's not graphic violence in the Nick. There's some violence, but it's not a big deal. It's the surgery scenes. Now, the good news is you don't have to make some kind of big investment into watching the Nick to know whether or not you're going to be able to stomach it. If you can make it through the first five minutes of the first episode in the first season, which is all there is right now, you're good to go because that's... Well, it probably gets rougher than that, but I mean, th those first five minutes of the first episode are whew, crazy, absolutely nuts. But if you can make it through that, if you can stomach it, then you got a fantastic TV show to watch. But really, it is a, uh, it's the most realistic graphic. I, I can't eat a sandwich during that. So, yeah, that's something hopefully between one of those three uh, shows, something that most of you can find something uh, that you can enjoy. Also, Penn and Teller, Fool Us, is a very good family magic show. All right, so let's move along. Uh, it's been a while since I read from the mailbag on the air, so let's do that. Um, the, the, the first step, I know it's every week is another no, not this week, no, not this week. And I really do think it's going to be soon, but no, not this week with my big news on the five pawns. But I do have some ridiculous stuff for you to, to, to sh that I can share with you now. Uh, my friend Steven uh, sent me a couple of messages with some commu some uh, communication that Five Pawns actually uh, initiated with him, which really just kind of blew my mind. Let me let me read this to you. First, um, uh, Jay, Jay Love from Five Pawns, who I believe is their sales manager, took it upon himself to reach out to Steven and said, hey, Steven, hope you're well. It's been mentioned that you have a deep disdain for five pawns. If you have a minute, I'd appreciate hearing your concern and perhaps address it. In this fragile and fractured industry, I like to understand why we are fighting against each other when we have uh, we already have enough to deal with on a legislative uh, level. Thanks in advance for your time. And then he puts his email address in there. So Stephen basically just asked them, you know, what's up? What's on your mind? And this is this is what. Uh, Jay wrote to Stephen. This is a crazy, crazy email. Hello, Stephen. My apologies for the delayed response. I was just reaching out to discuss your opinion of Five Pawns 
and the science, or lack of, that was used to smear our test results in a negative way by Russ and Cloud9. It's water under the bridge now. Is it? Is it water under the bridge? No, it's not. Stay tuned. Apparently, this guy doesn't know what the fuck's going on because he wouldn't say something like that if he knew what was coming. Anyway, it's, it's water under the bridge now. Yet I do like to clear the air and get away from the misinformation. One of our authorized dealers had made mention that you had influence on Facebook groups in the area, so I figured I'd reach out. It's unbelievable that individuals went out of their way to go to authorized dealers and threaten to take their business elsewhere if they didn't drop five pawns. Absolute idiocy. We worked hard to uphold manufacturing and quality standards to help bring legitimacy to this industry and get it the credit it deserves for helping millions of people off tobacco. No, you didn't. You found out that there was a problem with your liquid and it could only be... I'm obviously breaking away from the letter. Um, listen, you, you pulled a bunch of your liquids off the shelf. You've got this whole new push of, of this whole new line that is, you know, according to you, certified diacetyl and acetylpropanol free. I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm not sure it is, but I believe you. That didn't come about because <laughs> you were being above board and, and doing best practices. No, you knew about this a year ago. And you did nothing except hide the results for nine or ten months on purpose. When you knew everyone thought you, you guys were the beast, the, the, the top of the shelf, top shelf stuff. No, you didn't do anything. You waited until you're outed. Fucking liar. Yeah, where did I leave off? <laughs> uh, okay, the clickbang. Uh, oh, yeah, the clickbang campaign is nefarious damaging the core of the industry and is fueled by a racket of a few companies that use Russ as their puppet, really. And this is something he actually repeats again and again that I have, uh, I think he's, he said, nefarious handlers. I have people pulling my strings like a, like a marionette, like a ventriloquist. Now, please, everyone's been saying this for months and months that there are these people who control me and what I do, and I'm somehow profiting from this. Please come out with the evidence because there is none. I do what I want on this show. Shit, sometimes I, I talk about stuff, and I, I'm talking to Kevin, hey, this is what I'm doing next week. He's like, I don't think that's a good idea, Russ, but you can, you can do it if you want. I can do whatever I want here. I can literally say whatever I want. So if there is some evidence that I have nefarious handlers, that I have people pulling my strings, then just go out, just put the information out there, please. It doesn't exist. I am railing against your company, Jay, because you're liars. Because you got people to buy your product who would have never bought it if you were transparent. Now, let me continue with the, with, the, with the letter. There were nine people who were told via email from a customer service representative that is no longer with us that our products did not have diacetyl or acetylpropanol back in 2014. We have made attempts to contact each of them and have resolved the situation and grown to have much clearer transparency with all of our flavor profile tests posted to our site quarterly so folks can make an adult decision to purchase our product. Well, that's interesting. There's only nine people, only nine people who had this, uh, who were misled. Do, do they really expect anyone to believe that? That only nine people thought that five pawns was clean? Of the, 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 really? No, there were thousands of people and hundreds of brick and mortars who you either told indirectly or directly that it didn't have the shit in it. And they took on the line, they, they purchased the product, whatever. They really think, they think you're so dumb that you're going to believe that only nine people were misled. You cannot make this shit up. Our testing is extensive and far more accurate than many of the labs. Uh, oops, sorry. 
Let me just get this somewhere where I can read it better. Our testing is extensive and far more accurate than many of the labs that are testing for $40 to $100, $120 per test. It's nearly impossible to perform a gas chromatography testing for less than $300 to $500 accurately and make a profit per our PhD chemist. Where was your PhD chemist last year? We have also worked with toxicologists to provide analysis of diacetyl and acetylpropanol. And the truth is, there are other chemical compounds that are not being tested for that may be similar in effect, yet they are not on the radar of those that perform these witch hunts because they are using these other chemical compounds, i.e. butric acid, 2,5, uh, ooh, should I, hexanodione. I'm going to guess that's right. Uh, and yes, I'm not familiar with uh, i'm somewhat familiar with the uh, butric acid but no i'm they're not on my radar they're not on my radar because i have yet to see some scientific evidence that these are truly harmful in the same way that diacetyl and acetylpropanol are and frankly i don't make juice so there's that we are not alarming the public about any of these compounds because we do not have adequate science to do so all right well you just proved my point i guess supported my past statement we do not add diacetyl to any of our products and have minimized acetylpropanol considerably over the years while maintaining that... Bullshit. Over the years? Bullshit. You didn't do anything until just now. Over the years? It's either he's a liar or he's an idiot. I mean, it's one of the two. While maintaining the same flavor that the customers have grown accustomed to, more difficult than it sounds. We have uh, tested 72 other liquids, and you'd be shocked how many have higher levels. We are confident that our liquid and liquids in general, when used under the right thermal properties, we are not in favor of sub 0.5 ohm builds for the average user, are a magnitude of order less harmful than cigarette smoking, and will continue to convert as many smokers that we can with consistent quality complex flavor profiles. I really hope to have a respectful debate if you think that any of my if any of my information is off-based. We need to work together as an industry in order to weather the legislative storm that is about to hit us. The FDA has over 80 agents uh, following Facebook groups and social media, and after meeting with them, say that our industry is immature and needs to see the massive opportunity that is available that could be extremely disruptive to traditional tobacco. Uh, respectfully, Jay from Five Pawns. So what's the purpose of this quite long email sent to some guy, my friend Stephen, on, on Facebook? It's, is it, I mean, as far as I can tell, it's just, it's an effort to tell him to shut the fuck up and that his, uh, his opinion is, uh, is meaningless. Who takes this? Is the this the national sales manager of Five Pawns has time to take out of his day to reach out to people on Facebook and write these rambling diatribe of lies? Slow sales day, Jay. I hope so. Uh, there was a, a I think an overall very very good story on really on five pawns i mean it's it's about diacetyl and acetylpropanol and e-liquid but it really does focus and hone in on the five pawn story and this was in vice now i know not everybody's going to be familiar with vice magazine it is um it's a it's certainly out you know it's not a vaping magazine or blog it's a, it's a news blog you know they um uh they're not new york times big but they're they're pretty big and it's a good place to have this story told outside of because you know every, everyone here has has heard about this whole five pawns thing and i see a lot of people who pay attention to vaping blogs and shows and forums and things like that they know about this but the guy who i always think about who just walks into a, a store buys the stuff and leaves and doesn't watch youtube or listen to podcasts about vaping doesn't know a thing about it now vice the reason why vice is good as uh, for, for bringing this message and the story out is because uh, vice readers are in the exact same demographic as most vapors. Uh, typically young males, 18 to 30, um, 
that is the gr fastest growing segment of the vaping population and Vice's uh, reader base. Uh, so it's a good place to have it. The way this came about was um, Adrian Jeffries, who is a reporter, used to be a reporter for The Verge, recently moved over to Vice. And when she did, she contacted me and she said, hey, Russ, um, I'm with Vice now and we want to do a story about vaping. What's news? And I uh, proceeded to do an interview with her telling her about this whole Five Pawns thing, which I think is a huge scandal, and she agreed. And they published it, and now um, we finally have this. Listen, I'm not going to say the um, the story is altogether good, uh, but it's mostly good. I definitely take issue with the reporter who finally, who ended up writing it referring to vaping as smoking. And as soon as I saw it published, I went back and I told her, listen, in vaping, there is no combustion. Therefore, there is, you know, there's no smoke. It's, it's, it's vapor. It's not smoke. And then she said, listen, I understand, but I'm going to leave it like that. So, you know, I tried my best, but otherwise it's overall very good. And it gets this really, really what's been a hot story out here. So, something that's never been covered in any, Vice isn't exactly mainstream media, but it, it's approaching it. It's pretty close. I mean, they got a show on HBO. So, hey, something good story. I like it. Um, just seen some, just seen some weird, weird shit happening lately. There was, a, you know, it just. Listen, I really, I, I do, I, I, I really do want to support every vendor, every manufacturer's First Amendment right to advertise the product in the way that they see fit. I would, I would really, I, but I would really like it if everyone just had just a modicum of common sense, just a little bit. I mean, if you haven't seen it, and, I, and you, you, I'm sure you could find it anywhere. I'm not going to bother to post it. There was a vendor who was uh, a couple weeks ago advertising their e-liquid with an advert that had a box of crayons. But instead of crayons, they looked exactly like crayons, but they were really, uh, you know, 30 mil bottles of, of e-liquid. And it was a back-to-school sale written in crayon and everything. And it's just like, listen, I know they're not trying to get kids with this. I, I understand that. But for God's sakes... It, how much easier do you want to make it on the anti-vaping groups to, to, to take this stuff and just say, see, look, like who, listen, if you don't know what's going on, if you're not a part of the, all they have to do, they bring that in front of a bureaucrat or a legislator. That's it. It's done. I mean, what, what are you going to do to defend that? What are you going to say? And who would want to defend this company? What, what are you going to say other than, well, that is an isolated case of an idiot, but it's not isolated. It's it's still everywhere, and it's gross. I am the last person in the world who, who would suggest that some kind of regulation, some kind of government regulation, would be a good idea towards, you know, stopping this kind of thing, but... Ugh. So we do it, you know, we do it ourselves. We do it ourselves the best we can. We, we publicly shame them, and I think that's, I think that's the right way to go about it. And it, don't worry, we're, we're not going to, listen, this, these days are, are numbered. The, uh, the FDA deeming regulations should be pretty soon, although they keep, they keep pushing back, and they miss every one of their deadlines, but they got to be coming sometime this year. And this is, is going to be one of the first things to go. See what happens. There's this rapper his name is uh, Stitches, and he's making some ridiculously stupid. This this is almost like this just makes me laugh. <laughs> I guess I guess I guess I'm just hoping that nobody's going to buy this stuff. I don't know who this guy is, but he's making these these cocaine flavors, and he, this guy he loves rapping about cocaine. He's he's putting all these cocaine flavors, cocaine cream, cocaine custard, e liquids. And just, at this point, it's almost funny. Almost. Um, here is, this is, this is kind of cool. You know, for, let me, let me take a, take a minute away from, uh, from bitching about idiots and crooks and liars. 
and uh, read something really positive and really, you know, dare I say inspirational. This is from The Vapor Bar. This was written by Shell Hamill and posted to their blog on uh, earlier this month. This is called, We Need a Lot More Davids. And I just thought this was great. About three years ago, we were sitting around the small table that we, we originally had at the Vapor Bar and in walks an older gentleman dragging, dragging an oxygen tank slowly behind him, panting with every step. He says to us as he catches his breath, I'm gonna die, but it ain't gonna be like this. David knew his days were numbered, but he decided to live out his last day's cigarette free. That man came in every week, sometimes without his oxygen tank due to his claim that he had been able to breathe better. I know David thought we taught him so much, but he taught us so much more. If you ever pick up David's, if you ever pick up David's sweet treat, that is what David had us make because he craved rice, rice crispy treats and it will forever keep that name. We lost David in January of 2014. I know many of you know your customers and and can tell stories with us, but I will tell you that we have lost these stories of, of as of lately in most shops. We carry zero, three, and six milligrams on most shelves and cater to a whole new population. Why? The Davids of our world are getting lost. Had I had offered this milligram level to those in Dave, to those Davids when they came in, they would have surely failed despite the lack of the throat hit that they crave of smokers. They would have spent tons more money than they did than they uh, than they did to do so on these milligrams. We've evolved, they say. I'd, I'd go back to that big table in a quiet shop any day, then lose one more smoker to the fad they believe it is and shy away from. Please put higher milligrams back on your shelves. Please ask others in your shop to refrain from fogging out the entire place and scaring away the crowds that need us to reach them. Please carry an array of tobaccos to help out those new smokers. Yes, the Davids in this world are missing out, but I promise you, you are missing out so much more. Learn from someone new and help the new ones out. We are a community. We are a family. We have many, many people who are new in this industry that rely on us older ones to do it right. Why hold back secretly hoping they'll fail? Sure, we've oversaturated and we're oversaturated and inundated with e-liquid manufacturers and shops on every corner. But if we fail the industry, we fail the smokers. Many of these guys have no idea they need to carry product liability or to, or to ask the liquid manufacturer they buy from if they carry it. Why are we not educated on this? Each shop that carries e-liquid should be asking for their product liability certificate before they even sell, before they ever sell one bottle on their shelves. Protect yourself. Protect your customers. Are you teaching your are you teaching your customers battery safety and e-liquid safety? Do you scoff when a customer says it's not satisfying them anymore? Or do you know the questions you should ask to troubleshoot and find out why? If not, reach out. Ask some of those in the industry how to ensure that individuals stay successful. Do you know why flavors were created? Do you know what makes them a necessary part of being successful? If not, ask. You should know the hows and the whys of every aspect of your business and be able to educate everyone else. There's a science to the success of each individual and you should know it backwards and forwards. Trapper is a customer as well and also our promoter on a popular country radio, on a popular country radio station. I will never forget the day he came in and I went through the 50 flavors with him to help him to find the one that he could use all day. He continually told me after everyone, I can't taste anything. His taste buds had been so numbed that he couldn't taste anything, least of all tobacco. We finally decided on one he could taste a little bit. Months later, I checked on him and he was dual using. As anyone, as anyone who knows me knows that that will just not do. This completely means I failed at producing the answer to this conundrum. I then asked him, all right, what do you smoke? He told me he smoked American Spirit and after researching, found out that 
Not only did it have a truly unique flavor, it also contained higher nicotine than any other tobaccos. So armed with this knowledge, my lab manager and myself went out and bought a pack oh, and grabbed a pack of American spirits off the shelf in one of our shops. Customers hand them, uh, hand us over packs of cigarettes when they uh, know they will not touch another and we memorialize them on our shelves. We took the pack out back of the building and took a couple of drags off one. Not having touched a cigarette in over three years, I almost tossed my cookies, but we rushed back in and began to try to match the flavor in the lab. Trapper today is cigarette free after using the flavor combination we came up with that day. He is now one of my dearest friends and I am so blessed to have met him that day. Why did we do that? Because he is a David to us. There are all Davids to us. And I hope that you can keep those Davids in mind every time you make a decision in your business or choose an e-liquid company or a milligram strength to carry. Those are the ones we want to capture every day and help those who are the ones who will absolutely never forget you or the fact that you were the first one that helped them to succeed. If you do it for all the right reasons, then you can learn from every store you hear, every store you walk in, every door you walk into. Never once did I ever want that story to be because I want to blow clouds. I mean, I just thought that was great. So uh, again, the story is we need a lot more Davids and you can read it or share it at the link there. Good stuff. I'd say let's start the show, but we already have. Either way, I'm going to push this button. So there's this uh, there's this lawsuit in California that may may or may not be concerning to to the the real vapor industry. There's it's a lawsuit um, in California against Views Electronic Cigarettes. Views, as everyone knows, is a R.J. Reynolds product. Um, you know, stick battery that sucks. So at first, it's like, well. You might think, who cares? And uh, Ed, if you want to call in about this, please push one. Um, if you want to talk about this. Um, you know, at first it's like, okay, well, who cares about views? Well, you know, as these things go, you, it sometimes has a implication on the rest of the business. Basically what they're doing is they're saying that uh, we're launching this class action lawsuit because they're, they're, they're claiming that there's significant amounts of harmful carcinogens which has to be disclosed in the packaging, um, more so in California than any other state uh, with respect to tobacco products. Uh, plaintiff uh, Gerard Harris claims R.J. Reynolds Vapor Company is violating California law by failing to include a potential carcinogen risk, particularly expo exposure to formaldehyde and acetaldehyde in its marketing and labels. The complaint cites the California Consumers Legal Remedies Act. So uh, these chemicals are, you know, I don't care if it's views or anyone else. Um, they're really not a significant threat because, you know, it's it's not just the, the, the poison, it's the dose. And we found that what is actually inhaled in the vapor is very, um, it, it's under, to have an unsafe level for a human, they, they, you'd have to use the product in a way that a, a human would never use it, a vapor would never use it, turning up very high wattage or voltage on a on a clearomizer to produce a, a burning which you could you, you would never inhale you're you know you it would be in, instantly you know a, a feeling of burning like if you're using the product properly you're never going to have that still the trace amounts are there and um i think um they did reach out to greg Connolly from the american vaping association he he said it better than i could have thought of saying it uh, greg Connolly, president of the ava said that quote under internal, I'm sorry, under international toxicology standards, 
Exposure to trace levels of formaldehyde in products such as medicine is perfectly acceptable. California's anti-chemical regulators have set their threshold far lower than the science justifies. Okay. So here's the problem. Um, it's not, I, I could care less if R.J. Reynolds has to pay millions in a class action, but it does certainly open the door uh, to other, you know, other lawsuits going on across the industry about the same issue, um, which is really a non-issue. Uh, I think this is pretty dangerous. You know, I was talking with Ed about it. I see you're on the line. If you want to talk about this, just, you know, push one, Ed. But um, I think it's almost a good thing that it's RJ. Well, it's a good thing for a couple of reasons that RJR got hit by this first. First, if, if they do have a financial, uh, a significant financial settlement, you know, better them pay the first one than anyone else. But the other good thing is they actually do have the resources to fight this. I mean, who's got who's got access to more, you know, lawyers than RJ Reynolds? Nobody. You know, so that might be the silver lining. I don't know. This is something that definitely has to be uh definitely has to be followed. We'll see what happens, but here's uh here's a link to the story. Um this is either good news or potentially uh disastrous for the for for the industry as a whole. I guess we'll have to stay tuned with that. Oh, here's another. This is just, this is something fairly random. You know, I, you know, a lot of people don't like me these days, which is fine. I enjoy, I enjoy that. Um, a few months ago when, uh, you know, people get mad at me for two things, mostly number one, talking about diacetyl and acetylpropanol, and two, talking about police abuse. Uh, there's people that, nobody has a middle of the road, either either I'm the devil or I'm doing something very good. Now, at the time, I was in you know some sort of a little spat with a gentleman uh, you guys may know. His name is Patrick, Mag um, gosh, I don't want to mispronounce your uh, last name, Patrick. Patrick McGowan. Um, and uh, he wrote to me that I just thought this was a, a nice letter. So I'm going to read it to you. Hey, Russ, I just wanted to thank you for the work you're doing, trying to expose the abuses of law enforcement, as well as what you do for vapors. I really appreciate it. The first time we interacted was long, was a long, ugly debate about an incident in which a guy was unlawfully accosted by an NYPD officer in the subway. I think he's talking about my friend, Sean. The details aren't germane to this message. Suffice to say that I was ignorant about many aspects of government overreach, power-mad municipal agents, and the dangers of statist-heavy philosophies in general. And all through the drawn-out two-day discussion, you never once made it personal, despite my repeated provocations. I always remembered that and respected you for it. I gained very valuable insight into the effectiveness of classical debate techniques and I try to employ them when I can. I always knew that you can never change someone's mind by being insulting or hyperbolic or passionate, but I was never able to apply that. But I was never able to apply that knowledge until after that Facebook thread. Thank you for that. I know this uh, might seem a bit over the top or mushy, but everyone who has a desire to think critically can probably recall a three or four, three or four instances in their life that catalyzed the paradigm shift in their worldview or their default attitude or their general way of thinking. I think it's important to recognize those people and times so as to potentially allow for it to happen again to someone else who needs it. That's all. Thanks for the good work on the podcast and everything else. Well, thank you, Patrick. Um, very kind words. I'm glad I changed your mind. I remember a moment like that uh, without getting into too much detail, but it was like, you know, just one of those flashbulb memories. Like I remember everything about it. I remember what I was wearing, where I was standing. And of course the person I was talking to when I was in college, um, I was a hardcore socialist. Um, the whole thing, I was all involved in it. And there was literally this one moment, this one conversation that really flipped the switch. And um, yeah, I'm, 
Well, Patrick, I'm happy to be a flashbulb, hopefully a flashbulb memory for you. That's cool. So let's talk about some other stuff. What do you say? I guess we can start with some good news, although one really has to wonder. There was a guy on death row who was completely um, innocent of committing a horrible, heinous crime, of murder. His name is Montez Spradley. He was uh, finally freed from uh, from prison from and from death row. Um, Here's what's, I mean, I'm not, this is such a weird thing to say. I'm not surprised when someone who is innocent gets thrown on death row. I know that's a crazy thing to say, but how could you be? I mean, there's there's so many people, it's, this is, happens at an alarming rate. I would like to think that I should be surprised, however, when the people who convicted him did so in... I mean, this has got to be illegal. Bribing a witness? Let me let me tell you what happened. Um, I'm just reading from what his uh, lawyer from the ACLU um, has written. I began representing Montez seven years ago, not long after joining the ACLU. Um, no, uh, no physical evidence ever tied him, a young black man, to the uh, 2004 murder of a 58-year-old white woman in Birmingham, Alabama. The prosecution instead relied on the highly tainted and inconsistent testimony of his disgruntled ex-girlfriend, as well as a jailhouse snitch, who both claimed he had confessed to them. Um, the jury um, that did convict uh, Montez to prison did not want him to die. They voted 10 to 2 to sentence him to life, but the trial judge who provided over the first trial, uh, Judge uh, Gloria Bajakel, overrode their decision on life in prison. I didn't even know you could do that, but I guess they can in some states. They overrode, uh, the the judge overrode the jury's decision on life in prison and instead sentenced them to death in a process known as judicial override. More than 20% of the men in Alabama's death row have been sent there by Alabama judges, even though their juries voted for life. Um, Montez was not the first innocent man to arrive in death. All right, I'm going to skip over some of this, so. All right. So anyway, uh, just recently, the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals recognized that Montez's first trial had been a miscarriage of justice. Still, it took years to untangle the web of police misconduct and judicial misconduct by the judge that led to his conviction and death sentence. Um, basically, uh, just paraphrasing that, what happened was that, yes, he had a disgruntled ex-girlfriend who was paid $10,000 by the judge to testify. She agreed to do so. And then at the last minute, um, backed out, realizing that what she was going to do was was wrong and that she shouldn't do it. At that time, the detective who was in charge of the case told her that if she didn't take the money and testify against this man, they would take away her children. None of this was disclosed to the, 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 the criminal defense team. The judge actually signed off on this payment herself, but never told any of the lawyers about it. Well, ostensibly, she told the prosecution, certainly didn't tell uh, the defense. We also know that the lead detective on the case, the same one who authorized the payments, had lied on the stand about the ex-girlfriend's statement to him. After all, and so here's this guy. So, so all of this stuff was, you know, came to light, was, you know, proven that, and... Again, no physical evidence tying him to the crime except this ex-girlfriend who was coerced and paid to lie and some guy um, who was already in jail who was making a bargain to have his sentence reduced. Death row. So thank God he's a free man now. But what I want to know is this detective and this judge, they're free. There is, couldn't, isn't the, isn't any of this illegal? Lying on, I, I, I'm pretty sure lying on the stand is perjury. I'm pretty sure that a judge paying a witness $10,000, and what's the, what's the motivation for the judge to do that? Judge paying a, a, a witness $10,000 to make testimony, they, they know to the best of their knowledge is false. And these people 
are still protecting and serving and presiding over crimes? Holy shit. I, you can't make this shit up. And yeah, to the best of my knowledge, uh, Tess, yeah, still, still on the bench. Um, this is the, and uh, this is probably one of the, uh, the craziest drug war, drug war atrocity stories I, I've ever heard of. This is about, um, a young woman who, uh, when she was younger, this was, she was sentenced back in the, in the nineties, the 1990s, um, had never been arrested for anything. Her name is, uh, Shahandra Jones. So in the mid-90s or the mid to late 90s, she was arrested for the first time in her life on uh, drug trafficking charges. Now, they had no physical evidence. Uh, they never caught her with cocaine. Yet they still um, arrested and, and prosecuted her based upon uh, some of the other people they picked up in the sting based on their testimony. Uh, again, first time drug offense, no evidence, no physical evidence whatsoever had never been arrested before in her life. She decided to fight this. Um, she thought she had a very good case for innocence. And after all, it was a first time offense. Uh, so she fought it. So here's something. Uh, so some strange things happened. First of all, the uh, nowhere in this, in this case, you know, there was never any crack. There was never any crack cocaine. And certainly no one was accusing her of trafficking crack cocaine. They were accusing her of uh, trafficking powder cocaine. Still, they said that since, and they were able to uh, convict her on the one thing they were able to do is convict her on conspiracy to traffic narcotics or traffic uh, cocaine. So because it was a conspiracy, what they did was they were able to use this thing called uh, enhancements, enhancing a sentence. So what they said was since she was part of a drug conspiracy, she should have known that the powder cocaine would eventually be converted to crack cocaine, which triggers a greater penalty. Her sentence was then made even more severe with a punish with another uh, punishment tool because she had a license to conceal carry a handgun. Now this is not something that's unusual, certainly not in the state of Texas. A lot of people have concealed carry permits, and even though they never caught her with a gun on her person committing any crime, the fact that she simply had a license, it's not even clear if she had the gun, but she had a license, that her concealed weapon permit amounted to carrying a gun in furthering of a drug conspiracy. Again, another enhancement in the sentence. When she was um, convicting, convicted on that one out of seven counts, the prosecutor said that her testimony in her defense had been false and therefore an obstruction of justice. Another enhancement. And although no one was accusing her of being the supplier or the buyer, prosecutors described her as a leader in the drug ring. Another enhancement. At the end, when she was going to be sentenced, there had been so many enhancements that the judge actually only had one punish, punishment option, life in prison without the, pros, the possibility of parole in a federal penitentiary. Basically, sentenced to die in prison. Could not be overturned in any way, no possibility of parole. Her only option is a, pre, is a, is a pardon from the president. Literally, the only way she can get out of prison or have her sentence reduced or, or whatever. It's been 19 years now is if, if uh, Obama signs off on this. How does this happen? A woman never arrested before, never caught with any drugs, but due to the testimony of other people involved in the case, gets on the first time that she's arrested, life in, and no violence, life in prison without the possibility of parole. How does that happen in this country? I mean, isn't prison, I mean, life in prison without parole, isn't that for somebody who's like killed a bunch of people? 
Listen, I'm not saying that hard drugs don't hurt people, but a first offense, first nonviolent offense, she's going to go to jail for the rest of her life, period? I'm not a fan of Obama. Um, if he has done one good thing, maybe he's done a couple, but one good thing, he's actually starting to let these people go. So I encourage you, you know, I'm not big on these uh, petitions for vaping. I really don't think they, they do any good. I don't know, maybe this one might. Here's a link to the story uh, about Miss Jones and um, actually a petition you can send to the White House towards the end of, of freeing her because, I mean, you got to think at this point. This woman has had an opportunity to re rehabilitate herself. I mean, look at what she's done. Look at what she's done in, in, in prison. I mean, she's done the whole turn to Jesus thing, and that's fine. But... This woman could be a useful, productive member of society. There's no reason to to pay, forget about the millions of dollars to, to, to house her in prison for the rest of her life. There's no need for this. This is crazy. This is your war on drugs. So I take that back. Uh, Obama has done 89 good things. He has freed 89 prisoners who have applied uh, for clemency because of nonviolent drug uh, drug stuff. So uh, U.S. Open just uh, wrapped up. I'm sure a lot of you saw this, uh, this story, or maybe you've seen the video of um, James Blake. James Blake is uh, um, only recently retired as of two years ago, he was uh, playing tennis, and he was actually the number four men's tennis player in the world. I mean, excuse me, that's pretty good. Um, that shouldn't matter, but it, it, it has mattered, and for the better in this case. You can watch a video. The, the, the NYPD was looking for a couple of people that had stole some credit cards and were buying shoes and hamburgers, amongst other things, right? Um, so he was standing outside a hotel in uh, Midtown and literally you can see in the video, like he's just standing there and he just gets rushed and tackled by a cop, pinned down, handcuffed, thrown in a car, you know, the whole thing. This guy had nothing to do with it. He's a, you know, the, he's, it doesn't matter who, you know, the reason we know about this is because he is, you know, somewhat of a celebrity, certainly in the sports world. Otherwise, we'd never. Otherwise, he'd probably be sitting in a cell, in a jail cell. To be honest with you, but here's the interesting thing: this is a this is a case of identity theft, right? This is a case of the police trying to stop people who stole someone's identity via credit card and were buying stuff. Now, what they did, yes, it was wrong. Even if even if that was the guy who was guilty, let's just say he was one of the guys, right? Listen, the cop was undercover. He could have easily walked up to him. He wasn't going anywhere. He was just sitting there, you know, leaning against the wall. Could have easily said, walked up and said, sir, can I see some identification? Whatever. The whole the whole thing. He just tries to run away or something. Okay, that's different. But that clearly wasn't going to happen here. The guy did nothing wrong. He ne that, that's the great thing about being undercover. You can just kind of saunter up to somebody. And now you got him. The first thing this officer chose to do was apply force and it's not the first time this guy's got a long rap sheet and many complaints uh some of them found to be substantiated of uh disproportionate force so anyway even here's the here's the crazy thing because like i said this is a identity theft case right what the nypd did then was they released a photo of some other guy on instagram saying well this is the guy we were really looking for and if you look at his photo, he really does look very similar to James Blake. So they put his picture out there and his name out there saying, this is the thief we were looking for. Turns out that guy had nothing to do with it either. He was just some guy, happened to be in Australia at the time, who had nothing to do with this. Yet the NYPD has no problem defaming his identity all across the internet, all across the world. Now, eventually, they found the guys who were doing this and caught them good. 
But oh my God. And you know, it, it brings up a kind of a larger point. Let me, uh, if I didn't share this yet. It, it brings up a really a, a bigger point. And I, I've been talking and I've been talking about this in the, you know, it's always been my, my position and I, and I don't have a lot of data on this other than for New York city where there is this, uh, Civilian CCRB, a, a civilian complaint review board, who is uh, not perfect, but does issue a, a report a couple of times a year. And what I've what I've been saying for a long time is that most cops do their job and they do it well, and that it's really only a fraction of the force that are that are bad apples who are accounting for most of these uh, these complaints and these uh, these injustices. These these people being unnecessarily and illegitimately searched, seized, beaten, killed. So um, I will link you to the full CCRB report, but I want to, whoops, but I want to uh, highlight some of the points brought out by this report. It's exactly what I've been saying for a long time. Um, One of the things that they found is that the complaints are actually, um, are actually going down and they have been since the amount of videotaped um, interactions between the public and the NYPD. Since it has gone up so much because everybody has a smartphone now, um, their conclusion, the conclusion of the CCRB, is that filming the police has been instrumental in getting these complaints to go down because cops don't want to do bad stuff when they're on camera. Another uh, fact, the other overriding reality documented in this report is the confluence of two significant statistics. The continuing decrease in citizen complaints against NYPD officers and the remarkable fact that very few officers are responsible for almost all of the complaints. More than 80% of NYPD officers have had zero, zero complaints in the last 18 months. Whereas 14% of officers are responsible for 100% of all complaints. 5% of officers on the force, about 1,800, are responsible for 80% of the force complaints. What this means for the CCRB and the NYPD is that police misconduct is not intractable and is on the wane. The new culture of de-escalation is taking hold, a far less violent culture of policing that emphasizes and rewards professionalism. That's great. And if it's so easy to identify this minority of the officers that are causing all the problems, then why aren't they being purged? This guy who tackled tackled the tennis player is case in point. He's got a ton of complaints on him. And it's 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 all unnecessary force. So, why was he still on the fort? And it's only because this guy is a, is a famous guy, tennis player, that this guy is, you know, now sitting at a desk and probably, well, may get fired. It's a long shot. The uh, New York Times wrote an opt-out about him saying, yes, fire him immediately. Um, will that change anything? Maybe. I don't know if cell phones can convince cops not to beat people when they're being filmed. Maybe maybe an action like that can convince them, you know, hey, maybe when you're going to go apprehend somebody who's a suspect, you, the first thing you do, the first thing you do shouldn't be to tackle them. I mean, identity theft, right? This is not, that, you know, it's something people should get in trouble for, for sure. Definitely a serious crime. But usually people who do that aren't violent people. You, know, you walk up to them, you get their ID, you detain them, you find out what's going on. And you certainly don't defame another man who's got nothing to do with this, saying, well, we tackled this innocent guy because we were looking for this innocent guy. You know, the police can't even forcibly attack the wrong innocent black man these days anymore. They're not, it's just crazy. Um, Anyway, there's a ton of really, really interesting data if uh, if you're into this sort of thing on chokehold, all sorts of stuff in the CCC. Um, 
couple other interesting things. Under uh, you know, it's too much to go through here. Let me just link it to you, and you can go through it yourself if you want. Very, very good report from the CCRB. All right. Next. Oh, this is this is fucking crazy. This is um I this is about something that happened in Liberty, New York, which most of you probably have no idea where that is. I know exactly where it is because um when I was in in college, we used to have to take um you know, Route 17, which is a I don't know if they've actually made it into a, a proper highway yet, but at the time it was a pretty shitty highway. And uh, one thing that everyone knew that when you're going from Binghamton back to downstate, you know, New York City, Long Island, when you're going on Route 17 and you get to Liberty, which is just some little town on Route 17, slow down because it is a notorious speed trap. You know, go, you know, I think the speed limit at that point is uh, 50, but then they, they, quickly fluctuate the the speed limit from 50 to 40 to 35 as you go through the town. So you have to make sure that you you, you go below the speed limit or else they, they will ticket you. That's how the town gets all their income. Everyone knew this. So we would take it a, a one step further. We would reduce our speed to zero in Liberty and take it as an opportunity because it was kind of, you know, not quite halfway along the way to um, relieve ourselves. Liberty was literally our shithole. This is where we shit and pissed when taking the three-hour drive from Binghamton back to New York. So it's really funny that, uh, so listen to this, this, this story. This guy was like one of many who got caught in the Liberty Speed Trap. And what he did was uh, he got his ticket, went back. Um, I think he lived in Connecticut, but maybe he lived in White Plains. It's not clear. Anyway, when he got back, he took his checkbook out. He cut a check and then signed the ticket. And on the ticket, he wrote, fuck your shitty town, bitches. And also crossed out the name of the town, which was Liberty, and wrote tyranny. So, um, you know, he's just basically saying, hey, fuck you guys. Here's your money, but fuck you. Now, there's nothing illegal about that. Uh, in poor taste, maybe. Certainly not illegal. So what happened was... Um, his payment was rejected. So they they wouldn't cash his check. Instead, he was ordered to travel the three hours from his home to make an appearance in court. At that court hearing, two police officers acting on the orders of the assistant DA arrested him for allegedly violating the state's aggravated harassment statute. He was fingerprinted, handcuffed to a bench, and then driven to a different court in a different town where he was arraigned without a lawyer. He was then put in jail in another town. So we're talking about multiple, multiple we're talking about like 10 hours at this point, where he had a post bond for 200 bucks and then released several hours later. So what they said was, they, they said that they felt they felt they were in danger. They were in danger because he said, fuck your shitty town when paying a traffic ticket. If he was in so much danger, and then what? He has to come off. It's, it's crazy that, that, that they don't understand even the, the, the beginning semblance of, of your First Amendment rights, that they were actually, they would, they would handcuff somebody. And they, never, and they never took his money for the speeding ticket. Well, the ACLU took this up, and uh, on September 15th of this year, uh, the New York Civil Liberties Union today announced a legal victory on behalf of a man who was handcuffed and arrested in Liberty, New York, for protesting a speeding ticket by writing, fuck your shitty town bitches on his ticket payment form. Last Thursday, the federal court in White Plains ruled that a prosecutor's order to arrest the man violated the First Amendment. It also ruled that the village of Liberty must stand trial on claims that it had failed to adequately train its police officers about the First Amendment. Instead of protecting freedom of speech, government officers in Liberty handcuffed me, arrested me for a crime, and almost sent me to jail because I harmlessly expressed my frustration with a speeding ticket, said uh, William Barboza, who was 21 at the time of his arrest. The people I trusted to uphold the law violated my most basic rights. 
I hope that by standing up for myself, other Americans will not be treated like criminals for complaining about their government with a few harmless words. Well, I hope you get paid, man. I hope you get paid big time because all that town is is it's a speed trap and you were most accurate when you characterize it as a shithole. I have shit many, many times in Liberty, New York, and that's really all it's good for. I've been playing pool since, I don't know, it was 10 or 11. One of my friends in high school, his parents had a table in the basement, so, you know, just played casually. And, play, and you know, um, after coming back from college, going out to bars in New York with tables, I'd play a lot. Wasn't particularly good at it. I thought I was. And uh, did that all the way through 2012. In 2012, I uh, was approached by somebody forming a pool team in the American Pool Players Association. I didn't know what that was, but I was kind of like, oh, wow, somebody's recruiting me for a team? That's cool. Okay. Learned what the deal was and started playing in, uh, like I said, 2012. Um, I... Really highly recommend uh, the American Pool Players Association. There's no better way uh, for somebody who's uh, who enjoys pool to really take their game to the next level, not only in terms of skill, uh, learning the right rules, uh, but really in sportsman sportsmanship. I mean, that's one of the things that's uh, it's one of the most important things. You know, all this nonsense with bar fights and, you know, arguments over a pool table, they don't happen in games in the APA because it's not tolerated at all. It teaches you how to be a better sportsman. Um, I am never going to be the guy at bat in the bottom of the ninth in two outs, two outs with the bases loaded who makes the game-winning grand slam. I'm just not going to be that guy. I was never that good at baseball. Um, I was never that good at any. The only thing I was any good at was uh, taekwondo. I studied uh study karate taekwondo for five years and you know got my black belt i was pretty good at it but still i i wasn't going to be winning any uh, tournaments or anything like that and you know i went to tennis after that and despite my devastating two-handed backhand i couldn't serve to save my life so you know really the only reason i made the junior varsity team honestly was because my mom worked at the, in this athletic department at the school so i don't have a lot of opportunity for that moment, but I, I had that moment yesterday and I'm still buzzing from it today. It was, uh, you know, basically the way the APA works is it's uh, what you're doing every season when you enter and you pay $8 a week to, to play is you're entering into a tournament with literally tens of thousands of teams throughout the country. Now, most of what you're going to do is you're going to play with teams in your division, you know, bars or pool halls or whatever uh, that are uh, located close to each other that you will go and play at the other teams and they'll come to your bar and you'll go to their bar and you know you have a match every week. Uh, there are three seasons a year. Typically each season is uh, 14 weeks. Now if you uh, if you're in the top tier of teams in your in your uh, division then you'll move into the playoffs and from the from the playoffs, uh, you go to the next level. So, for example, I'm in New York City. Uh, my division is the Lower East Side and East Village. Uh, if you win your division, then you play the greater, you know, then you're in the top teams of the greater New York City area. You play a small tournament with those teams. If you make it out of there, um, eventually what you'll do is you'll make it to Las Vegas where the APA will fly you and your team and give you um, airfare and uh, hotel to be in Vegas for a weekend where, you know, another huge tournament where hundreds of teams, ostensibly the best teams in the, in the country, uh, play in a, in a tournament where, you know, if you win, you know, there's all kind, you know, there's eight ball, there's nine ball. I think there's 10 ball now. Uh, there's team play, which is five teams. You know, usually a team has eight players. Uh, there's singles, there's doubles. Uh, there's a Jack and Jill, which is male and female doubles teams. There's all, there's all kinds of different ways you can, you can get involved. So you don't even need to like join a team. You could just be someone who wants to learn more about pool. And uh, the great thing about the APA is that it has this handicap system so that you don't need to be great to win. You're handicapped. You're going to be given a handicap anywhere between two and seven based upon your play. The lowest ranked player with, you know, the, the least skilled player being a two and the highest skilled player being a seven. Now sevens are actually quite rare. Um, for example, we haven't had a seven in our division 
um, in two or three seasons. They're 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 rare. Um, twos are also pretty rare because once you get in and you know you you might you might be a two. If you learn and you get better, your candy cap will go up. So in the most extreme in the most extreme situation where you have the lowest ranked player a two playing the highest ranked player a seven, uh, the two is going to have to win two games of eight ball to win the match, whereas the seven would need to win seven. Um, that's an extreme matchup, but it just goes to illustrate that, you know, a two, you know, you can you can potentially win two games against the seven. But more likely, uh, you know, most players are ranked either a three, four, or five. So when a three plays a four, for example, which is the matchup I had last night, I'm a four, I was playing a three, I had to win three games to win the match, my opponent only need to win two. So um, we were in the playoffs last night, and since 2012, I've only been in the playoffs one other time, and uh, my team didn't win. So last night, what it came down to was it was do or die for for me, and I was the last person to play on my team. I'm I'm the captain of the team, and I knew e I ha either I beat him, and we win, and we go to the next level of, of the playoffs, you know, it, making way to our way to Vegas, or uh, if I lose my match, we lose. And um, I came out swinging, and I I took the first two games uh, fairly quickly. I beat him very very soundly meaning I only needed one more game, and if I won it, that we would win. Um, the next match, um, it was a really messy table, and uh, also as a lower-ranked player, he being a three, has the opportunity to get more coaching from his team. They're actually able to call a timeout when he's looking for a shot and able to coach him for a couple of minutes and tell him, well, you shouldn't do that, or you're about to, you should do this instead, and that sort of thing. He, he has an opportunity to be coached twice a match, I can only be coached once a match because I'm a higher skill than him. So anyway, uh, his team, which is excellent, and uh, the team captain is a phenomenal has a phenomenal mind for pool, was able to get him through that third game. You know, I had won the first two. I was able to get him through that third game and get me in a, a pretty tight spot, which he was able to take advantage of and win. So it all came down to the last game. So this is it. I mean, I'm an amateur pool player. This is the only opportunity for me to be up with two outs in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded, and there it was. And I played great. I did. I played great, and I won. And, oh God, it was just so exciting. And that cost me $8. It cost $8 a week to play in the APA. Like I said, I'm still buzzing. I mean, I'm just on, I'm on cloud nine. <laughs> I'm on cloud nine after last night, and 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 oh, it's just beautiful. 